Well, welcome to Divine Scripture. Um, really hope that this um, yeah, seminar is really helpful. Um, it is my privilege to um, introduce Mark, who is going to come and share with us. Uh, Mark is at Trinity Church, uh, where I am from in Nottingham, which is very exciting. And, uh, and he is a priest in the Church of England. Um, he, is also, um, he also has many, many degrees. <laughs> uh, he's done so much studying um, in theology, a PhD um, in theology. And, uh, and he's an incredible teacher and teaches all over the place. He teaches at our church. And honestly, he has a heart of pure gold, of pure gold. And I feel honoured that he said yes, which <laughs> is incredible. I think you're a little nervous speaking to a bunch of women, but we're going to be kind to you, I promise. Um, but during the, uh, during the seminar, um, there is an email that's on the screen, I think it's going to come on the screen. And basically, if you have any questions or you feel that something is stirred within you, you want to ask that, um, just email in mm. at um, hello at theorchardwomen.com. Mm. And Joe here is going to sift um, some of your uh, questions and hopefully we can form some questions to ask and have a bit of a Q&A um, at the end as well. And then we would love to just have a bit of space to pray um, and for God to minister to us. So... Let's welcome Mark. Let's give him a good warm. <laughs> I'm going to pray for you. Yes. I, I need that. <laughs> All right, let's extend a hand um, to Mark. Oh, Holy Spirit, we um, are just so grateful that you have been working and you are continuing to work in this day. You're always working, Lord. And... Um, and we ask now that you would come and would you fill Mark with your spirit? Would you fill him now to overflowing? Would you give him your voice? Would you clear his mind, God, that he would um, share what you want him to share? And I pray for us, I pray for myself and us in the room, Lord, that you would open our hearts now to receive what it is that you want us to receive from the heart of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Um, hello, I'm Mark, and know what you're thinking. And yes, all the female theologians are busy. <laughs> I think they're all speaking at men's events somewhere, um, but it's all right because I have deep insight into women as a father of three boys who went to boys-only schools for all but two years of my education. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, even our guinea pigs were male. My poor wife has been so outnumbered. <laughs> and she has also promised, if you have any questions about what I'm really like, don't email hello, just ask her. She's in here somewhere. Um, but actually, um, I think I'm here because God called me to do this. So as I was praying about this the other day, someone came over and gave me a word. And the, uh, the word that they had, the picture they had, was a picture of me with a leaf blower. And I was blowing leaves to one side of a garden. And then a car came and messed it all up. So I blew them to the other side of the garden. One of the questions you could ask my wife is how frequently I garden. But I blew them to the other side of the garden. The car came again, messed them up. And in this picture, what happened next was God gave me a litter picker and told me to pick them up and put them in the bonfire. And I think that's why I'm here. That person didn't know what I was praying about, but I think that word is about this seminar because there are lots of messages about what it means to be a woman and about what the Bible says about that. And a lot of them are not correct. And some of them are downright terrible. And my aim today 
is to gather some of those up and put them in the bonfire. Because the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy and he does it by lying to you. So be warned that that's the stuff that I intend to go after in this seminar. Um, because I want you to leave knowing that the divine scriptures are a site where you can encounter the same God that you meet when you're in worship here, the same God whose spirit is at work throughout the rest of this day. And I'm aware that it may hurt for you to hear some of this because it presses on previous pain or because it highlights ways that you haven't been invited into the story of scripture by other people on other occasions. In fact, as I was working on this, I found myself getting angry at the teaching that my wife must have heard as she was growing up in the churches that we were part of. And I found myself regretting and repenting of the ways that I've contributed to this and the ignorance that I've demonstrated in the past. And honestly, I found myself deeply moved by what each of you have faced from the church. See, I know from my own journey that it's not easy to learn to think differently from the people that told you what God was like when you were growing up. And it must be so difficult and painful to be able to come to an event like The Orchard, to hear a message of empowerment and liberation and of God's Spirit being at work in you, through you, with you, for you, and then go back and sit with a Bible that you've been told supports only or mainly your silence and submission. Or maybe just to hear church leaders imply that you should be beautiful and be quiet as Elizabeth Bear Siegel puts it in her book. That's why I think this matters. So with the time that we have, it's not possible to cover everything, not even close. And I want to come at this differently than just by dealing with the difficult passages in Paul. So if that's what you came for, I'm really sorry, but let me tell you why I want to go after something else. One of the earliest writers in Christianity after the New Testament was a guy called Irenaeus, who was the bishop of Lugodunum, which is now known as Leon. And Irenaeus found himself in a fight about how to read the Bible well. And he was arguing, uh, he, wrote his, he wrote a book called Against the Heretics. We don't do book titles like we used to, but he wrote a book called Against the Heretics. And he wrote this. This is what he writes about his opponents. Their manner of acting is just as if one, when a beautiful image of a king has been constructed by some skillful artist out of precious jewels, should then take this likeness of the man all to pieces, should rearrange the gems and so fit them together as to make them into the form of a dog or of a fox, and even that but poorly executed." What's going on in this metaphor? In this metaphor, the Bible is a beautiful image of a king, God, made out of individual jewels, the various books, maybe even the various texts that you encounter when you come to Scripture. But notice what Irenaeus is arguing. He's arguing that his opponents are engaging with the same jewels, that they're reading the same books and texts, but they're getting to the wrong picture of God. To kind of update and downgrade this metaphor quite a lot, it's like they're trying to put a complex jigsaw together and they're looking at the wrong picture on the box. They have all the right elements, but they're smashing them together in ways that the pieces don't fit and they don't form what they're supposed to because they've got the wrong picture on the box. And what I want to talk to you about today 
is what picture is on your box when you come to read the Bible. I want to talk to you about the image that you have of God and try to put Scripture back in your hand. And I want to do this by addressing three big questions, um, which were heavily trailed, so hopefully won't come as a surprise to you. Um, First one, is the God of the Bible male? Second one, does the God of the Bible have a male preference? Third one, does the God of the Bible want to release and empower women? Um, So, in coming at the question in this way rather than another way, rather than just beginning with the difficult passages, I'm learning from Irenaeus, but also from Beverly Gaventa's excellent book, Our Mother St. Paul. I brought these in case they're not in the bookshop so you can see what they look like. Um, This is worth reading. Um, It is heavily academic in some ways, but it's just phenomenal. She argues, Beverly Gaventa argues, that the, question, the right question when you come to Paul's writings, she's talking about Paul, is not what does, the gospel, uh, what does Paul's interpretation of the gospel permit women to do and what does the gospel prohibit women from doing. The right question is what is God doing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what does the gospel mean for the lives of women? So we're learning from Irenaeus, we're learning from Beverly Gaventa. It's about what God is doing. See, it matters what you think the gospel is. It matters what you think God is like. It matters what picture is on the box when you come to the Bible because it tells you the way that you should read the story. It tells you that the story moves in this direction. It tells you the Bible has a particular grain that you ought to be reading with. And the issue is that if you start with the questions of what is permitted and prohibited, you never get to talking about the astonishing love of God, which obliterates every other system of worth and leaves nothing untouched. We've all got access to the same Bible verses. The fight is about what picture of God they best build. So I want to invite you today to think with me about the picture on the box to think about your image of God and then to see whether that has any implications for the way that you and I read Scripture. So let's dive into question one. Is God male? Well, in a famous 2012 sermon, John Piper said that God has given Christianity a masculine feel. Most importantly, because of God's self-revelation as king, not queen, and as father, not mother. Similarly, the Old Testament scholar David Kleins, in an article written last year, looking at the use of female imagery for God in the Old Testament, ends up arguing the fact is, though, that the Yahweh of the Hebrew Bible is a thoroughly male God. Right, David Kleins, John Piper are both trying to take seriously the language of the Bible and say something about God. But... Should you think God is male as a result of the things that they've said? I don't think so. Let me tell you why. First, all of our language for God is metaphorical. All of our language for God is metaphorical. You see, the words that we use to describe God can't contain God. And actually, all Christian theologians would accept that. We see through a glass darkly. Our words don't reflect God's reality truly, even if they do truly reflect God's reality because he is so kind to us and is willing to show himself in ways that we can comprehend. 
And this means that believing that God is male because lots of the biblical metaphors for God is male is a category error. In Exodus 3, Moses turns aside to see a burning bush which isn't being burned up. And as he stops to look, God calls to him out of the bush. And Moses and God have a conversation in which God sends Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses stops and asks God, what shall I say if people ask me your name? Just think about that question for a minute. Moses is asking God for his name. Moses is asking, who are you? Moses is asking who God is. God's name communicates God's essence. This is about the picture on the box. What's God's response to Moses? God's response to Moses is, I am who I am. I am. Theologically, God is not a being. God is being. God is not a being. God is being. So asking about the sex of God, God's maleness or God's femaleness, it's a kind of category error. Being doesn't have a sex. It's the wrong question. The problem is that God puts us at the edge of our words and they start to break down. And that's not a surprise because God is God. If God wasn't bigger than your words, then you would have a problem. But you can see the implications of this later in Moses' story when you get to Deuteronomy 32 and he moves backwards and forwards within the space of a few verses describing God with both male and female language. Deuteronomy 32, um, first couple of verses. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his way, his work is perfect and all his ways are just. Verse six. Is he not your father who created you? who made you and established you. Verse 18, people of Israel, you were unmindful of this God, this rock. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. Have you ever known a man bear a child? You forgot the God who gave birth to you. This language coming in quick succession as it does highlights its own limits. It highlights the limits of the metaphors. Um, as Janet Soskis argues in The Kindness of God, another decent book, um, she argues about this passage, paternal and maternal imagery in quick succession effectively rules out literalism. If we're going to talk about God both as father and mother in quick succession, then we can't assume that God is literally either of those. To put it bluntly, God is not actually a rock. Shocking, I know. That's the insight you came for, isn't it? Definitely not a rock that gives birth. Again, groundbreaking. I mean, that would have to be, wouldn't it? But there we are. Um, similarly, he is not literally a father or mother in the sense of a male or female human. And actually, if we go back to Genesis, when humanity is made in the image of God, the text emphasizes that God made them male and female. And we're going to come back to that. So my point is not that sex difference cannot somehow reflect the reality of God. It's that the preponderance of male metaphors should not be read as suggesting that God in God's essence is somehow male. That's not right. God is not male, even if femaleness and maleness are somehow features of humans made in his image, which is something I'll explore more in a minute. But if there's one set of language that you could argue escapes this limitation, it's the language of father and son. 
Why? Because that language comes out of God's most significant self-revelation in the incarnation of Jesus. What happens when Jesus uh, comes into creation? The Father causes a son to be born. We see God most clearly through the conception, birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the question of whether the Bible paints God as male is still worth asking even in that story. Let's look at Luke's birth narrative because Luke gives you more detail than Matthew as to how this plays out. So I want to begin by reading some of the passage where Gabriel announces God's plan to Mary. Should come on the screens. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he said to her, greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called a son of God. Called Son of God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Right, there's a lot going on in that passage, but I want to draw your attention to three particular things to try and answer the question of whether God uh, is presented like a man or differently. Because actually, I think Luke goes out of his way to undermine the idea that the father's role in Jesus's conception makes him male and even highlights the uniqueness of Jesus's own maleness. And for this section, I'm drawing heavily on this book by Amy Peeler, which is called Women and the Gender of God. It is hot off the press. It came out on the 4th of October. Um, and it, again, it's very good. I brought them so you can see them because I'm not sure they all made it into the bookshop. Um, apologies for that. So, first, the language that Luke uses here for the cause of conception is overshadowing. Why not consider that God is male in this story? First, Luke uses language um, about the cause of conception, which is overshadowing. That's language which is at home in a conversation about light rather than a conversation about male and female humanity. One of the other things that, um, the, the, one of the other kind of key images for God which drives you away from literalism is to speak about God as light. So this, this overshadowing fits into that kind of uh, language game. But when Mary asks, how will this be? Gabriel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And this actively works against any hint of the kind of God bearing a child story which is rampant in the ancient world. Because Luke's not unique. He's actually not even unusual in telling a story about a God being involved in a human birth. That's one of the weird things about this. There are, there are scholars who would argue that the reason Matthew and Luke include birth narratives the way that they do is to, so that they can show the specialness of Jesus in a way that will make sense to the world around them, which is used to Hercules and is used to, frankly, Zeus having sex with everything that he sees, right? But Luke avoids these on purpose and instead talks about overshadowing. And what does overshadowing 
do. It recalls the language of the spirit hovering over the waters in the Genesis creation account. This is a different kind of conception. Second point, the angel Gabriel announces what will happen to Mary and then waits for her response. Waits for her response. In Luke's account, Mary is thoughtful and engaged throughout the interaction and she's allowed the last word. There's a real contrast there. There's a real contrast with a male priest, Zechariah. Shortly before, what happens to Zechariah? He gets silenced. He is struck dumb for the period of the pregnancy. Something different happens with Mary. The angel Gabriel waits for her response. Mary's last word is, May it be to me according to your word. The verb in this bit is the genoita, the first Greek word that looks at this in a different script. It's the verb here, and it's in what is called the middle voice. Now, English doesn't have a middle voice because the middle voice sits between active and passive. Active is I do, passive is someone did it to me. And the middle voice sits in the middle. (laughs) I've lost my place in my notes. we don't have an equivalent for it in English, but Amy Peeler in that book, which is on the top of that pile, she puts it this way. The middle voice lives in a territory that is neither active nor passive. It is instead reflexive. The action is initiated by God, but Mary permits its impact. Mary permits its impact. This woman allows God to act in the world for the sake of saving the entire world, and he waits on her permission. Doesn't that sound like a divine power that lays itself down rather than rather than something else? Mary puts her body, her womb, and later her arms and breasts as she nurses Jesus at God's disposal. And it's her willingness that makes the birth possible. I want to stress this because Luke can write this differently. None of us were there. He could have had Gabriel turn up, announce, and leave. Instead, he emphasizes Mary's engagement in the process. So... First, Luke talks about overshadowing rather than any kind of more straightforwardly male divine conception, which is totally available to him. So he's avoiding that on purpose. Second, the angel Gabriel waits for Mary's response. So there is a heavy emphasis on Mary's action in this story. Third, the maths is off. So yours and my biological understanding of where babies come from. Don't worry, I'm not going too far basically involves a man and a woman, and increasingly the possibility of a technician in a lab coat aiding a process via IVF. In the ancient world, there's no concession to technology, but there is a greater awareness of the role of God in the process. So in the Babylonian Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish interpretations of Scripture written in the form that we have it roughly in the 6th century AD, but formulated over many centuries leading up to that, you read this. There are three partners in making a man. It's always a man. The the Holy One, blessed be he, his father and his mother. One, two, three. But Jesus' birth is unique. You see, on this model, God doesn't replace the man. God removes him. In fact, it's the power of the Most High, as in Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit who overshadow Mary, allowing her to birth the Son. So the whole scene is Trinitarian rather than dualist in the way that human sexuality is dualist. Dyadic. Um, it would be another word for that, a better word. 
So even in this story where God the Father causes a son to be born, God's activity is actually not presented as male. Luke actively points in a different direction. As Amy Peeler puts it again, in the virginal conception, God causes the birth of a son, even provides what a male normally supplies, but in a non-sexualized, divine and even triune way. As revealed by the narratives of the incarnation, God the Father is not male. And remember, the incarnation is like the high point of God's self-revelation. If God's not male here, he's not male anywhere. And this isn't just true of God the Father either. It's also true of the Son's human maleness. Yes, Jesus lived as a Jewish man, but his maleness is not the same as that of any other male. In every other case throughout the whole of Scripture, the God of the Old and New Testaments pursues his purposes by blessing quote-unquote normal unions of women and men. And Matthew's genealogy goes out of its way to make the point that God's grace is even capable of redeeming the brutal sexual histories of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the unnamed Uriah's wife, right? In that sense, there's actually no reason why Jesus couldn't have derived his humanity from the same kind of union. But Jesus derives his humanity solely from Mary. God could have blessed a normal union, but he didn't. God could have created a body from scratch, but he didn't. He sent Gabriel to Mary and he sent the son into her womb to derive the second person of the Trinity, like this is, this is genuinely crazy. The second person of the Trinity enters into a womb to derive humanity. The second person of the Trinity was there when they made humanity in the image of God. The second person of the Trinity doesn't need to go find humanity from somewhere. He made it. He didn't though. She gives her flesh to Jesus. And this is unlike any other human conception. It's unique. There's a saying in the early church about Jesus' humanity that what was not assumed was not healed. The point that they're trying to make is that Jesus took on true humanity, real humanity, not some kind of spiritual body that none of the rest of us had. But it works another way. Jesus' humanity has to include both male and female because otherwise he hasn't saved us all. And actually, if Jesus' humanity is derived solely from a woman, but born as a man, it includes both male and female in a unique way. It's humanity solely from a woman, born as a man. When Jesus humbles himself and enters Mary's womb, receives his humanity as a gift from her, he assumes a universal humanity that saves us all. And the result is that his humanity was truly representative precisely because he was male like no other. I have no greater claim to identity with Jesus in his humanity than you do. So is God male? First question. No. Shock, right? Even when the biblical authors are depicting the father begetting the son, they go out of their way to do it in a manner that doesn't make the father's action look like a male human's and that emphasizes the uniqueness of the son's humanity. The incarnation, when God takes on flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, is the high point. It's the most clear picture of who God is. It tells us the most about what should be on our box. And the scriptural depictions of God's power at work here 
deny the attribution of maleness, even when it would be so easy or natural for them to adapt it, to adopt it, even when that would fit better with the culture around them and it would make Jesus more palatable, it would make Jesus make more sense. They don't. I think that's important. It has to govern the way that we read the rest. God's not male or even masculine. God's not male, but... The 12 tribes of Israel have patriarchs, not matriarchs. The Levitical priesthood is all male. Um, Adam was made first. Jesus had 12 male followers. Does God just like like men more? Is that what's going on? This is my second question. Um, Does God have a male preference? So I want to dive into a couple of texts in a minute. But before I do, I want to say something about what it means to read these texts in their historical context. Because... I think that there can be a tendency to try to demonstrate that somehow the Bible is less bad than the surrounding cultural context and somehow that we should let go any badness that is in it because it was less bad. It's just, it's less bad. And if it was less bad, then maybe we should try to be less bad than our surrounding context. I don't think that's enough. I don't think it's enough to say the Bible is less bad than the culture surrounding it. I think it's actually important to test our theological impulses and ideas against the ideas of the people who wrote and received these texts which became Scripture because Scripture was written by people who encountered God for people who want to. Scripture was written to tell you what God is like, to show you what it looks like to meet Him. Actually. It's a dynamic meeting place between God and people, not a book. So I don't care if the people that wrote it were better or worse than their neighbours. And like me, they are probably both on different occasions. I'm interested in what they thought God looked like. I'm interested in what direction they saw God moving in. So the question is not, is the Bible better than its surroundings? The question is, what is the theological direction of travel? So does God have a male preference? I want to look very, very briefly at Jesus and then talk about creation for a little bit. And Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. If you've spent any time with the Orchard podcast or indeed in the Gospels themselves, you'll know that Jesus has what my wife describes as a special kindness for women. Jesus is consistently loving and compassionate towards women, not least by addressing them in a culture where that means walking towards shame. Greco-Roman culture, I learned this recently, Greco-Roman culture talks about gender this way. You have manly things and you have unmanly things. You don't even have feminine things. Women, women Women are monstrous men in this discussion. The Bible genuinely is less bad than some of its surrounding context, right guys? But um, there's, so, there's so much that we could look at, but I just want to highlight one instance that has passed me by before. I can't remember why I digressed into the Greco-Roman gender thing anymore, so I'm going to come back to my text. Um, 
I want to highlight one instance that's passed me by before because I think it tells you about Jesus, something about Jesus' attitude which is systemic, repeated, habitual, happens over time, every time and possibly hasn't been the subject of an Orchard podcast episode yet. But in Matthew 12, Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him and someone tells him and Jesus replies, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, mother, uh, my brother and my sister and my mother. I want you to notice two things here. First, Jesus clearly has women among his disciples. You don't just around at a room full of men and say, here is my mother. And my sister, Jesus clearly has women among his disciples. That's not standard practice for a Jewish teacher at this point in history. And these women, they happen to be here on this random occasion. This isn't women's day. Matthew, just as well, remember this. When the gospel writers are writing their gospels, they get to choose what it looks like. You weren't there. You don't know. You don't know if they're lying to you. He doesn't have to write about women. It's easier for him if he doesn't because then Jesus can just appeal to all the manly men and we can all be happy. I don't know what we would do in that situation. Um, But Matthew writes this. This looks like Jesus' standard practice. And if it's unusual in its context and unhelpful to Matthew, then it makes it more likely to be true because why else would he write it? It's not helping him win brownie points. His his wife has not rewarded him for saying this. It's probably true. Um, Second thing, uh, Jesus speaks about female disciples as both sisters and mothers. And think about what the Ten Commandments say. Honour your father and mother. And actually, Luke presents women as financing Jesus's ministry. Paul speaks about women as benefactors. You are not on a par with a benefactor. You are in a lower seat than a benefactor. A benefactor is keeping you alive with their money. Women sit in privileged positions. It's no wonder that Paul's letters speak about mutual submission if this is the way that Jesus speaks about his disciples. There's not a male preference here. Jesus wants women to be able to encounter God in him. And actually, as I was researching, you may have noticed I've started to get a little bit antsy. As I was researching, one of the really frustrating things that I learned is that men have always known this. Men have always known this. And they just lie to you. I told Amy I'd either cry or swear. Um, They they get round it. Do you know, they get round it by making the women into exceptional women. How many sermons have you heard about how Peter was normal? Seriously. I'm so angry about this. They've lied to me as well. I'm so angry about how many sermons have you heard about how the disciples were just fishermen. They were just people that Jesus bumped into on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and they were all normal and we can do it too. But not the women. They were exceptional. Give me a break. Because it's for you. It's for you. 
it's not just for the exceptional, it's not for the women who are more beautiful or who are like smarter or oh, something. I don't even know what categories to use. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm off piste and I really don't want to tread on a landmine. If you want to know more about how this happens, then you should read The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. I don't have a copy of it to hand because I read it on my Kindle because I needed some of the books to be on my Kindle because I was reading late into the night. Um, and it lights up with a backlight if it's on Kindle for me. Um, Beth Barr is a medieval historian who traces the development of Christian thinking about and treatment of women. And it was, shall we say, eye-opening for me. That was a brief glimpse of Jesus' standard practice, but what about creation? So you may well already know that there are two creation accounts at the beginning of Genesis. There's one in Genesis 1, and helpfully, there's one in Genesis 2. Um, the transition point is actually in Genesis 2, verse 4, for everyone who's keeping score of me as an academic. In the second creation account, that's the one where Adam's made first, and Eve is made from his rib. Or from his side. You get different translations of that. That's where the male first element comes into the creation story. That's the second creation account. The creation account that doesn't talk about humanity being made in the image of God. What happens in the first creation account? God creates human beings in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I haven't got time to do a deep dive here. I'm probably already over time. But let me show you that how you read this depends on the picture you have on the box. As Lucy Pepiat notes in her book, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, there is a reading of these two stories, which is what she calls hierarchicalist, I think. Although that's not quite a word, so who knows. Um, there's a reading of them that says that a male-female hierarchy was part of God's good creation from the beginning because Adam was made first and Eve is his help meet. But, again, I've not got time to do a deep dive on that, but I would like to explode that. Anyway... Listen to the way that Basil of Caesarea reads Genesis 1.27 in the 4th century. It's long, but it's worth it. He says this, and he puts this argument in the mouth of a woman within his text, which is a feature of what the Cappadocian fathers did because they had a sister called Macrina who was a phenomenal gospel teacher and preacher in the 4th century AD, back in that patriarchal society where there were no women doing any ministry because we've been lied to. Anyway, so that no one through ignorance takes the word to mean only the masculine sex, the scriptures add man and woman, he created them. The wife also, like the husband, has the privilege of being created in the image of God. Their two natures are equally honourable. Equal are their virtues, equal are their rewards, and alike are their condemnations. Let no woman say, I am weak. Strength is in the soul. Since assuredly the image of God everywhere carries the same honour, let the virtue and good works of both the husband and the wife be equally honourable. There's no recourse for those who want to use the weakness of the body as an excuse, but by compassion it is capable of enduring privations and of standing firm during vigils. Are males capable of rivaling females who go through life with privations? There's a man writing in a woman's voice in the 4th century asking that question. Can men rival women? 
I don't know if you knew that that was part of the Christian tradition, but it is. Can males imitate the endurance of females in fasting, in their ardent prayer, in the abundance of their tears, in their zeal for good works? See, Basil doesn't see hierarchy when he looks at creation, but equality. He's not even asking women to assimilate to some version of maleness in order to be equally good. As Elizabeth Bear Siegel, another one on the Kindle, uh, puts it when she comments on this passage, it is remarkable that in this portrait of a woman in the image of God, Basil seems almost on purpose to pile up both feminine and masculine traits. You're not strong and in the image of God because you have the potential to be manly in my Greco-Roman gender stupid dynamic. It's not that. There's balance in this passage. I also wanted... um, I also want to say that Basil argues elsewhere for the possibility of transcending your sex by becoming celibate. And for the early church, the best course for women, as indeed for men, is celibacy. The hierarchy of female holiness runs something like this. Mothers at the bottom. I mean, no offense. Like, this is just, this is not my hierarchy. Mothers at the bottom. Virgins and widows in the middle. Celibates at the top. And as Beth Barr shows in her book, this actually gives women an option for agency and non-family-centered religious vocations. When this order gets reversed in the Reformation and homemaking becomes the holiest thing, that's actually when a woman's place becomes the home. It even puts a stop to women's economic activity and that makes them more dependent on men. I tell you this to show that the idea that women belong at home is a social attitude that develops over time and not a necessary interpretation of the creation story, no matter what you have heard. So to come back to Genesis, it remains the case that the call to celibacy captures something important because ultimately your desires, including the erotic ones, were made to be fulfilled in Christ. And this is why the disordered desire of the fall is so devastating. As Lucy Pepiat puts it, a woman in her brokenness and vulnerability turns to a man rather than God to meet her needs. And instead of kindness and compassion, she encounters his, she encounters his broken and disordered need to dominate her. If, like Basil, you see equality in creation, then dominating hierarchies become a feature of a fallen world rather than part of God's plan. And you know what? I think this just highlights how different Jesus is. He both uniquely takes his vulnerability to God and lays aside his disordered need to dominate in favour of displaying kindness and compassion. Jesus has a special kindness for women. Jesus walks out divine power because he knows himself to be divinely desired, as are you. He's rooted in the love of God. And celibacy makes sense for Jesus and for his followers because sexual desire is a subspecies of desire and desire ultimately finds its fulfillment in God. Nothing else is going to satisfy. And that's why Leviticus is so important. No, genuinely. 
The amount of space that Leviticus devotes to regulating things like menstruation, pregnancy, and childbirth can make it seem as if women's bodies get in the way of their relationship with God. Because there are inherent processes that they undergo that make them unclean. But it's not, again, it's not true. It's not just menstruation which makes a person unclean. It's any discharge of bodily fluids, including the ejaculation of semen. If you think you're uncomfortable, imagine what it feels like to be saying it. The difference, <laughs> the difference in the length of unclean, I'm going to keep going. This is seven days for menstruation and only one, one day for a nocturnal emission. Vince Cable on Brexit, anyone? No? Um, it roughly corresponds to the length of discharge. There is definitely a joke there, but I am not going to be the one who says it. In fact, the vast majority of the laws, in, Le in the vast majority of the laws in Leviticus, there's no difference between the demands placed on women and men. And Jonathan Clowens argues against the blind identification of impurity, uncleanness, and sin. Impurity is natural, unavoidable, and not sinful. So when Leviticus is talking about this uncleanness, it is not highlighting what it perceives to be sinful. The whole point of Leviticus, this is where the, the law is a gift, right? The law is a gift. It takes, it takes us, it, it is difficult for us to understand that. But the whole point of the holiness code is that it gives you a way into God's presence. And if it's balanced between men and women... What does that say to you? It says to me that God wants both men and women to be able to come into his presence. And if you're living in a patriarchal culture where it's easy for you to ignore that, then the fact that this makes it through into the Bible suggests to me that God is going out of his way. This is what it suggests to me. I'll leave it with you to decide what you think. The holiness code shows the desire to ensure that women can access the presence of God. Just as Genesis 3 assumes that Eve was used to walking with God in the same way as Adam. And this is what you see in Jesus as well. He goes out of his way to ensure that women can access the presence of God, despite the mores of the patriarchal culture that he was born into. And that brings us to the final question. Does the God of the Bible want to empower women? I hope you've got a hint of the direction in which I might go. <laughs> I hope that some of the stuff so far might help you with that. I think God is very committed to seeing women empowered. But I want to try to answer the question by looking to Mary's role in the incarnation, looking back, and then looking at some of what Paul does and says. Again, I'm not going to talk about the difficult passages. We haven't got time. It was a long time ago now when lunch was fresh in your memory, but you may recall that I talked about Gabriel waiting for Mary's response in, the, in Luke's birth narrative. And Mary's given the final word when Gabriel comes to announce God's word to her. And she says, may it be to me according to your word. She uses the middle voice, which falls between active and passive. She gives her yes to God's action in her. When I saw this, and I regret to inform you that I saw this for the first time while prepping this, when I saw this, I was shocked. The reason that I was shocked is I spent, I spent 11 years studying the Bible. One of the pieces uh, that I wrote a book about, um, or a significant chunk of my book about, was the Pentecost in Acts 2. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, divine agency, uh, 
divine and human agency work together in a shocking way. So God causes the speech that comes out of the, out of the disciples' mouths as it is coming out of their mouths, but somehow he chooses not to do it without the willing engagement of their lungs, tongues and lips. What do you see here? You see this same pattern of divine and human action working together. Paul picks up on it in Philippians 2 verse 13, uh, 12 to 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you so you can do stuff. I've taught those texts multiple times in multiple settings. I had not realised that Mary is the archetype of that. Luke talks about Mary first before he goes on to describe Pentecost in almost exactly the same way. I didn't know that. It's no wonder people worshipped her. Like, anyway, another thought for another time. Hers is humanity's first response to the revelation of God in Christ and it displays the pattern for all the others. And Mary does this distinctively because of and not in spite of her womanhood. She chooses to accept the risk of bearing a bastard in a culture in which she could have been stoned for that decision, using her power by laying her life down for the sake of salvation. This is what she does. Does it sound like Jesus? Because I think it does. She bears Christ in the world. And this is what you and me are called to as well, to bear Christ in the world. Meister Eckhart, who is a German mystic, puts it this way. We are all meant to be mothers of God, for God is always needing to be born. It's not about having babies. All the humans, women and men, are called to this. You and I are called to bear Christ in the world. And in this sense, we, women and men, are all Mary. Not Peter, not David, not John, not Moses, not Abraham, not anyone else that you've been asked to identify with. Because Mary is our archetypal response. And hear this clearly. It's not because we're not Mary because divine is active male and human is responsive female. Because God's not male. That's why it works in this order. That's why I address the questions in this way. We're all Mary because the divine initiates and the human response. And Mary reveals this dynamic in an archetypal way at the moment of God's incarnation in Jesus Christ. There's a place for this divine marriage, male, uh, this divine, in the marriage metaphor, there is a place for this male and female union, uh, metaphorical language, but there is no literalism in it. There is no literalism in it. God is not male. The usefulness of that language is in the closeness of the union, primarily. Mary's story stands as an archetype at the beginning of the gospel narrative and throughout the gospels, women play important roles which are all worthy of examination in their own right, but I don't have time. In Mark's gospel, which is widely seen as the first one that was written, when you get to verse eight, that's where most scholars would tell you that it's done, right? Who has encountered Jesus in his resurrection? Only the women, right? Again, Mark does not need to write his gospel this way. Mark can write it however he likes, right? Mark gets to write this, not this Mark, the other Mark. Mark gets to write it. It's shocking 
that he finishes the story, leaving it hanging on the thread, hanging by a thread on the validity of these women's testimony when they could not have testified in a court of law as witnesses. Mark is trusting this story to them and he doesn't need to write this story this way. And who inspired Scripture anyway? It was God. So maybe God wants it to look like this because he wants you to know that you carry the story. Think about what it means for God to reveal himself to and through Mary and then through these women. God trusts his own self and his own story to them. And he does this by breaking out of anything that can hold him. Mark's ending tells you that Jesus is out. He's on the loose. He's on the same side of the door as the women and the readers and you and me. And this really is my final point. And it's the shape of the gospel. The gospel is the story of a God who will not, will not, absolutely flat out refuses to, will not, cannot, could never be contained by the boxes that we want him to work in. He's the one whose kingdom utterly obliterates conventional wisdom and every value system that has ever tried to squash you into his box. That's who God is. And Scripture witnesses to the astonishing inbreaking of this power. And that's what Paul is trying to do in his letters. I acknowledge that there are difficult passages in Paul about headship, authority and silence. And I do think they have explanations. We could have spent the whole hour on them, but I'm not interested um, because the gospel is more exciting. If you want to explore that, start with Lucy Pepiat, Beverly Gaventa and Susan Eastman, whose book I'm not holding up, but who is phenomenal. I do want to say one thing, because again, I think people have lied to you. Romans 16 verses 1 to 2 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Ken Cray. See the little notes on deacon? It's because people have lied to you. (laughs) The little note on deacon is because people have tended to translate that as servant because they can't stomach the fact that she's a deacon. I commend her to you so that you may welcome her in the Lord. It gets worse. It's so important that she is commended because most scholars today would argue that this is a commendation of the person who Paul asked to deliver the letter. Now, you don't just deliver a letter in the ancient world. You don't pack it into an envelope, send it through the Royal Mail. You carry it on a hazardous journey and then you read it. Then you read it. Then you do this bit. This bit that I'm doing right now. That's what you do if you're the letter carrier. (sighs) Phoebe's the letter carrier. What have you been told about Paul? Paul wants women to be silent in church. Do you know what else you've been told about Paul? You've been told that Romans is his most important letter. Paul trusted his most important letter to a woman to perform. He put stage directions in Galatians so that the reader, Galatians 4 verse 20, if you want to check it, put stage directions in there to remind the reader to change their tone. And he doesn't put them in Romans. Romans is his most complicated, ridiculous letter. I don't understand it. Phoebe helped him write it, carried it, and she preached Romans for the first time. Right? I don't know what else to say. Please hear me. Let it sink in. To go back to Beverly Gaventa, the most important question is not what Paul permits and prohibits. And you know what? If Paul's commending Phoebe and she's preaching Romans, 
then why would it be a surprise to you that the household codes are actually revolutionary and actually for equality? Like seriously, it is worth doing your own research there. Hopefully those women will be helpful. Like come, you can email me or something if you're really stuck. The question is not what Paul permits and prohibits. The picture on the box matters and Paul's gospel destroys every system of worth that came before it and stands opposed to it. It's serious. It's disruptive. It goes so far as to change who is living your life, seriously. As Paul writes in Galatians, when God revealed his son in Paul, Paul died. Shock. And he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And the result of this is that when people meet the artist formerly known as Paul, I was hoping for laughs, they see Christ crucified. (laughs) And he thinks the same is true for every single person who encounters this gospel. And look, that's why there is no Jew or Greek or slave or free. There's no longer male and female because you're all one in Christ Jesus. As Beverly Gaventa puts it, as the gospel's arrival obliterates the law, it also obliterates those other places with which people identify themselves. Even the most fundamental places of ethnicity, economic and social standing and gender. The only location for those grasped by the gospel is in Jesus Christ. I told you she was good. Read that book. This is the gospel. God is on the loose. The divine power has erupted within the world and it will continue to work itself out until Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. There is no safe, reasonable place to stand. There's nowhere where you can get away from the expectations of this. There's no self-contained island. What does that mean for women? It means God wants it all. It means God wants it all. He comes to you like he came to Mary, asking for your willing engagement to bear Christ in the world. He bursts out of the tomb to stand on the same side of the door as you, trusting you to tell his story to a desperate world, despite your fear and despite the inadequacy that has potentially been foisted on you. God trusts you. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. God trusts you. Despite the fact that you shouldn't be able to do it like the women who can't testify in a law court. He's calling you to offer your body as a living sacrifice. He's calling you to use the distinctive power that you each have, that each of you has as a woman, the strength of soul, the ferocity of love, the gentle kindness of higher average emotional intelligence than men among so many other things. And to lay it down for the sake of seeing salvation spring up because if you don't, then I am the poorer for it. If you don't lay your life down, as a channel for God's divine power to flow through you, then I miss out. So just whatever's been said, whatever's been said to you that has hurt and harmed and silenced and shattered and bowed and broken you down, whatever lie the enemy told you through the mouth of a man. I break it in the name of Jesus. 
be free because it's not what the God of the Bible says over your life. You are in Christ. This is where you are. This is what the gospel is. This is what the divine scriptures ultimately say. You're not identifying with a male saviour despite your womanhood. You're immersed in Christ's unique representative humanity, which Mary willingly gave of herself to enable the second person of the Trinity to take. You are not trying to relate to a male God, but responding to the gracious activity of the holy other triune God, whose unity and difference is best imaged when daughters and sons are empowered by his spirit to witness to his world together. You are not trying to believe that God wants to encounter and empower you despite what you read in scripture. You are equipped to hear his spirit speak life to you through scripture. Because you can, you can read scripture and come to the conclusion that God is not a man. And I really, really think that you should. You can read scripture and come to the conclusion that God doesn't like men more. And I really hope that you do. And you can read scripture and come to the conclusion that God wants to encounter and empower women. And I really, please do. Because this, listen, to the best of my knowledge, this is the picture on the box. This is who I actually think God is. It's beautiful and it's radical and it's not always reflected in his church. And it's marred when his daughters are told to be beautiful and be quiet instead of recognised and empowered to take up their unique role in bearing Christ in the world. It's not just women who've been silenced when that happens. It's scripture. Because the God of the Bible consistently goes out of his way to encounter women, see them empowered for the sake of seeing his kingdom come. And that means you. Thank you. I think I speak on behalf of everyone. Thank you, Mark, for giving of yourself. I know you've poured your heart, as we've seen, um, your time and your um, devotion into that. And um, it's a gift to us. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pull us back slightly into um, a couple of questions. Um, we really want to make time and space for um, ministry and to, um, to encounter God as we, I think we have. I think we all have encountered God in this session, but um, I feel like God will want to do some specific work. Um, so we want to make time for that. So we're not going to give loads of time to questions, um, but I do want to honour a few questions that have come through um, that might just help um, the rest of us. Um, I would love to pull us back to um, a bit of what you were talking about around um, male preference um, in the Bible. And one of the questions came through were, why aren't there women in the 12 disciples and do these disciples hold any more power or authority than the 72? I wonder if you have anything to bring to us on that. A, maybe a short little something. <laughs> okay. Um, it's very hard to know where to stand. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, just, I've been dealing with that the whole way through. Thank you for your patience. Uh, yes. Um, it's a good question. I wouldn't read it that they have extra power. That's the easy starting place. The reason that I wouldn't read it that way is because I don't read Peter's confession as the foundation of the church on Peter, which is the key place that you could go to see lasting power being put into this particular group of people. Um, the, as to the question of why there are 12, one of the best things that I came across arguing about that is referenced in Lucy Pepiat's book. Um, I can't remember the name, but it argues that um, what Jesus is doing when he picks 12 disciples is he's picking, out on the, he's picking up the symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that essentially it's an echo of that. And we're in a... Yeah, basically, because those are already men, we're doing it this way. That's one of the best things I've read about that. Um, I don't have a very good answer, is the honest truth. I think that's a good start. Thank you. Um, what response do you have for men who quote 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of, every, of Christ is God, as an argument that women are not meant to, to be leaders or elders in the church? Yeah, I, they can quote that again when they've read this. That's, that's my response. Read it, engaged with it, and got a coherent counter-argument. So for those who didn't see, that was Sorry. Lucy Pepiat's book, Rediscovering Scripture's, Scripture's Vision for Women. I'd highly recommend it. Um, I enjoyed um, a good read. The, the, other thing, the other thing that you could read is her book, Women in Worship at Corinth, where she does a deeper dive into the same text. The key to the argument is um, she would argue that Paul's making a rhetorical argument wherein he quotes other people's positions back at them and then takes them apart. Um, it, it, takes some, it, it takes some work to follow her argument, but it's not because her argument is specious or wrong. It's because it, it, the scriptures are actually worth studying with care, um, which is why I spent 11 years trying to become careful. I hope that helps. Thanks, Mark. 